Welcome to episode two of Lunchtime Layup. My name is Ferris Kaff. First of all, thank you for all the constructive criticism that we got on the first episode of our podcast. This is episode two, and we're just going to get into it. No long intro necessary. So today, with the All-Star break, there's not really a lot of games to talk about apart from the All-Star game, and I don't think we all want to talk about the All-Star game for an hour. So what we decided we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of an award show at the mid-season point or at the All-Star break and uh, basically go through MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, Coach of the Year, Rookie of the Year, all that fun stuff. We're going to have hot takes. We're going to have discussion, and it'll be a good time. So, gentlemen, let's get into it. All right, so the first thing we're going to start off with is the obvious one, is the MVP. So I'm going to pass the, uh, the baton off to Cam, because I want Cam to tell me who you think is the MVP for the 2017-2018 NBA season, if it were to end today. Uh, if the season ended today, I would have to go with James Harden. Um, it's, it's not exactly an outrageous pick um, or one that's super out there, but I mean... You lead your team to the best record in the league. You lead the league in points. Um, and honestly, just being able to, to facilitate everything when CP3 is gone and then mix him back in seemingly effortlessly, um, I'm pretty sure that the Rockets are either 28-1 or 27-1 and um, when CP3, Harden, and Gordon all play. And so just that sort of dominance when you actually have your full roster really leads itself to him being the favorite in my mind. I think, I think we're probably all going to agree with that. I think we all have James Harden as our MVP. Some, some stats that like I thought were personally interesting is his usage rate has actually gone up uh, with the addition of Paul, which isn't the most obvious thing. I think a lot of people thought that uh, D'Antoni would stagger the two of them and stagger their minutes, but as a matter of fact, James Harden's usage rate has gone up, and his turnovers per game have gone down. So two of the th- one of the things that people really didn't like about him last year was the amount of turnovers he was getting, and he's cut that out of his game. He's cut it down from 5.7 to 4.2. His three-point percentage has gone up. His field goal percentage has gone up. Like you mentioned, he's leading the team to the first seed. So uh, I'll pass it off to Warren. Is there anything that we need to add to James Harden's case as MVP? Well, I think that one thing that can be added just to build to his resume is the fact that when we think of isolation basketball, people think of Portland, even last year's Raptors. But in fact, Houston is the number one isolation team in the NBA. And with James Harden's usage as what it is, their offense's whole flow and structure is completely dependent on him dominating night in and night out. And his ability to make his teammates better, his ability to make every three-point shooter around him feel involved, and just his ability to draw fouls at the end of games, like everything he does... Like, without him, like Mike D'Antoni's system, it would just be next man up, and every point guard does do well in that system. But when you see this team in first place compared to many of the old Mike D'Antoni teams besides the Phoenix days, uh, it just just speaks volumes to how dominant James Harden is right now. Yeah, I think you can't really overstate just how much of a transcendent offensive season he's been having. A lot gets made about Harden being predominantly uh, free-throw-based as a player and the way that he draws free-throws and everything like that. But even if you were to subtract free-throws altogether, remove foul shooting from the equation, across the board he would still lead the league in points at this point in the season. He has more 50-point games this season than the rest of the league combined, which is in and of itself absurd. Um, But just to kind of dive into some advanced stuff a little bit more, uh, the Rockets score 117.6 points per 100 possessions with Harden on the court, uh, which is second only to Golden State. 
in that regard. So if that's where you are and you're ahead of Golden State in the standings, that is not a bad place to be whatsoever and I think is a pretty good case for Harden as MVP. So yeah, Harden definitely has a, a pretty sound case for that. Uh, one of the consistent knocks against him is that he doesn't always like to play defense. I think anybody who's watched a Rockets game over the past couple of years can attest to that just with the eye test. But he has put more of an effort into it this year. Uh, among shooting guards, he actually ranks in the 88th percentile for steal percentage, uh, which isn't outstanding, not defensive player of the year worthy, but definitely can uh, go towards making a case that it's not a knock against him in the MVP discussion, at least. Um, if we are all agreeing on Harden, do we have any second place people who we think could overtake? See, him that's my in that the was, second half. That was something I was going to bring up. I think at the at the end of each award discussion that we have, I was going to like ask a question. And my question in this round particularly is: first of all, who's the number two? I think that there's probably a short list of two or three players. Uh, I think Giannis probably is having an MVP caliber season. I think that LeBron is always having an MVP caliber season. And I think that maybe this is a bit out of left field, but I think that Boogie before the injury was putting up ludicrous numbers and was having an MVP caliber season. So my question off is mainly about LeBron. What does LeBron have to do to win another MVP? Because at this point, we're just so we're expecting him to put up ludicrously good numbers, which is what he's been doing for like 14, 15 years that he's in the NBA. So what do what does LeBron have to do differently or what stat line does he have to do to be able to get an MVP Thomas? So I think for MVP one of the biggest things that actually drives it is the media narrative behind it, right? It isn't always just a stats-based thing. The story that goes into who uh, who the candidates are actually plays a pretty big factor. So the way the second part of the season plays out with LeBron's new team, uh, same Cavs, completely different roster. Uh, the way that plays out is definitely going to be one of the biggest factors for it if they go like 24 and 2 the rest of the way and he keeps putting up numbers like he did in the very first part of the season i think that makes a pretty good case for him and it's also going to depend on what happens out west right do the rockets stay in first does james harden drop off at all do you start seeing chris paul dominate the play more than james harden like all of those different things are going to play into the actual narrative for it um honestly i I think that at the end of the day, the only way um, LeBron can really give himself a good chance against Harden is for the Cavs to somehow pull off a miraculous run at the end of the regular season and move into the second or one seed. Because, I mean, from a stat perspective, he's averaging more assists than he has any season in his career. His... uh, total rebounds are would be the second highest of his career um and he's still averaging 26 and a half a game I mean, so from from a stat perspective you really can't expect much more from him at the end of the day it's just there's never been an mvp on a team with less than 50 wins and i don't see lebron being the first especially with the fact that he already has three and there's already a narrative that he has a bunch of mvps so i think we're essentially all in agreement that James Harden probably not a unanimous MVP but of of our little panel of voting it's it's James Harden is everyone in agreement with that yeah all, all right. in on Harden so next award we're going to talk about is an award that in the NBA is probably means more than i would think and it does across other sports and that's coach of the year because there is consistently a group of amazing coaches in the NBA 
and every year something different happens and uh, certain coaching methods like pop resting players uh, Steve Kerr's ball movement and three-point shooting which has completely changed the league so there's a lot of coaching that goes into the NBA and a lot of coaching uh, particular coaches change their system year to year to build around the players that they've got so I'm gonna pass this off to Warren and Warren I'd like to know who your coach of the year favorite is if the season were to end today all right, so there are a lot of candidates this year. I, obviously, Brad Stevens is one that you can look at, and I have a lot of respect for what he's done with the Boston roster that I really don't think is that good, and it's very young. But I'm going to lean towards Dwayne Casey, actually, of the Toronto Raptors, and I never, 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 never thought I would say that a couple of years ago. But you have to give credit to his ability to adapt, and you don't know whether or not it's like something from the front office that's been – uh, changing their style of play, but no matter what the reason is, he's the head coach and he's the face of the product, and the Raptors are shooting more threes. Their bench has been absolutely incredible, and that has been a large part of his development of all these guys is this core of young players are all Toronto draft picks, and they're all guys that the Raptors have developed over the past three years. And the Raptors are first place in the East, and you know a lot of people talk about how the Raptors don't get a lot of respects, but I think they're actually starting to get that respect, and you know, Dwayne Casey's built an identity for the team. Uh, they're pretty much unbeatable at home. They're 41-16. and 16. They have the best point differential in the Eastern Conference by five whole points against the next best Boston Celtics. And they're pretty much right there with Golden State and Houston in terms of point differential. And at the start of the year, there were a lot of question marks with this Raptors team. There were questions whether or not they should rebuild after getting swept by Cleveland. And they've come back, and they've changed their whole product. They've gotten a lot better. And I really think that, that Casey deserves it, and it was a well-deserved all-star appearance, and I, I really believe that he should be talked about for coach of the year. And the last point I was going to make is that they're 41-16, and 16, but they could be a whole lot better. They've lost a lot of close games to a lot of really good teams right at the end of the games. If you remember, both games against Golden State, the Raptors were right there until the last shot. Uh, San Antonio is a tough loss. So this team, they're not just beating up on bad teams. They're playing right there with everyone, and they've had many impressive wins throughout the year. And for the first time uh, in the past, I guess in the Dwayne Casey era, it seems like a sustainable style of play to win into the playoffs, and I think that Casey deserves to get rewarded for that. Yeah, I think if you told me a year ago, two years ago, that we'd be talking about Dwayne Casey as a Coach of the Year candidate, I'd probably tell you to get out. Um I remember there was one. There was one play a couple of years back. He uh, he drew up a corner three for Amir Johnson out of a timeout to win the game. And right there, I was like, I'm on the bandwagon. Let's fire this man. I never want to see him in the city again. But fast forward a little bit. Uh, the Raptors this year, the biggest and most obvious difference has just been the percentage of three pointers that they're actually taking. So last season, uh, not including garbage time minutes, they took 26.4 percent of their shots were three pointers. This year, we're up to 33.8%. That is a massive, massive swing. And it's a dynamic shift in play for a guy who hadn't really shown much of, uh, much of anything towards being able to change the way that his teams play. So as much as it pains me to not pick Popovich, because I think if we're just picking straight up best coach, uh, he should win it every single year. But given the way this season's gone and given the fact that the award typically goes to the coach who's had the most surprising uh, change of events or the most surprising turn to the way that his team's played. I think it makes a lot of sense to, to give the nod to Dwayne Casey on this one as well. Um, I hate to agree with you guys again, um, but I would also go with Dwayne Casey. Um, just to 
to throw a different name into the mix. Um, I would look at Nate McMillan, who's an unconventional candidate, but who, with, yes, the help of Victor Oladipo, has the Pacers at a 33 and 25 record. Um, they went 40 and, or sorry, 42 and 40 last season. So they are definitely on pace to destroy that record. Um, and I think that other than Oladipo, there really isn't a ton of talent on that team since Paul George has left. Um, and you know, McMillan has done a lot more than what was expected of them going into the season. And I think that while he won't get recognized in that discussion for the most part, I think that he should. If we're going to carry on on that uh, train of thought, Brett Brown could be a candidate uh, on the Sixers who went, I think, 28 wins last season and have already beaten that. I'm not saying he's going to be a favorite or he should be considered, but if we're going down that train of thought of has improved his team, has exceeded expectations, I think Brett Brown falls into that category. There's a couple other names that I wanted to bring up. Uh, Quinn Snyder in Utah, like they got hot right before the All-Star break. They won 11 straight games. Donovan Mitchell has just gone off. And if they say they finish in the sixth seed, does he he find a way to win Coach of the Year? Like if they continue, obviously not win every single game for the rest of the season, but if they win, uh, I don't know, 60% of their games, 70% of their games, they end up moving into, I don't know, the sixth, fifth seed. Does that put him in the conversation? If that's the case, then you have to because right now it's really only – a, 12, a 10 to 12 game sample size that you're going off of to give him that. But like, I mean, if you look at the rest of their season, other than the win streak, it's not impressive. And so if they win 60% of the rest of their games, and then you also include the 10 game win streak, that's a much larger sample size that you could use to build a case. But for right now, I, I don't think that that's really viable. Mike D'Antoni. I, I think Mike D'Antoni should win it. He's my pick. Mike D'Antoni has obviously James Harden, who we mentioned is a ridiculously good MVP candidate, and most like, and for us he was a unanimous MVP. But in the process of getting uh, Chris Paul, he has had to trade away Pat Beverly, who was arguably their best defender last season on the perimeter and was key to their style of play. Lost Lou Williams in the process. Lost Montrez Harrell, Sam Decker, who weren't exactly key players, but who still provided nice depth and. Depending on what your take is on how these two would fit together, some people thought they'd be good. Some people didn't think they'd be that good. Chris Paul and Harden, it is undeniable that they've been incredible together. Like the, like you mentioned earlier, they're 27-1 and when uh, those two and Eric Gordon play on the same team. And they're the best team in the NBA right now, so I think D'Antoni should win it. I will interrupt you to say that my very first tweet on Twitter was the day that that happened, that Chris Paul went to the Rockets, and I said that it wouldn't work. You said so it wouldn't. I said that it would not work at all. So I, I'm, I'm wearing it. I'm wearing the L on that one. But at least you own it. Yeah. Does Does D'Antoni have a chance then? Is D'Antoni do is Is it ridiculous to think that a, a guy with this much talent at his disposal no. could find could find a way to be a coach of the year because his team's the first seed? I don't. I don't think it's crazy at all to think it. Right. Especially if they end up finishing ahead of Golden State. If they end up with the best record in the NBA overall, I think it's definitely a case to be made. A lot of that's going to come down to how the Eastern Conference plays out as well, right? So if the Rockets fall off a little bit, say they drop to second or third, right? Golden State does what they always do, and they just win games. And then out East, the Raptors end up finishing first again. I think an 82-game sample size of Dwayne Casey completely changing his offensive playbook or making an offensive playbook 
uh, is uh, is deserving of that nod ahead of D'Antoni, who really has used the same system, um, but just it's a system that works uh, as long as you have transcendent point guards, right? You saw it with the Suns. You're seeing it now, right? It's not a it's not a new thing. Yeah, didn't see him. it with the Knicks. No, well, <laughs> when they the did Knicks. not have a <laughs> transcendent point guard. Well, I mean, when when you have two of the best 15 players in the league, you should sort of you're built for success. I mean, you can't really say that about too many teams. Um, so yes, obviously he does have some help, but you're right. They did lose a lot in bringing CP three in. And obviously there's just as much work to do on a player's end as there is from D'Antoni's side, but he definitely has worked with what he has. And the fact that, you know, other than, Harden and CP3 their team really isn't amazing and to put those parts together is pretty impressive on his part so I would definitely put him in consideration for coach of the year yeah I just want to add to Thomas's point and I do agree that this is kind of just Mike D'Antoni's system and he has all the the pieces to make it work and, you know, looking back at the Los Angeles Lakers team that he coached in 2013-2014, he ran the exact same system with Kendall Marshall and Steve Blake as his two point guards. And those two guys, they had career years offensively, but the team didn't win. But Mike D'Antoni's system is just designed to shoot as many three-pointers as possible, have your offense run through the point guard, drive, kick, just try and outscore teams as much as possible. And, you know, it's not to take anything away from him, but... I think when you have Chris Harden and, and Chris, Harden. Chris Harden, Chris and James Paul, yes, <laughs> the the new dynamic duo in Houston, Chris Paul and James Harden, when you have those two together, it's pretty hard for the system to fail, and he has all the tools in place. So, I think that it should be expected that this team is where it is. But that's not to take away from the job that D'Antoni's done. But like, how much do you value the work he's put in? When in reality, this probably wouldn't work if he didn't have two two of the greatest playmaking point guards of all time on the floor together for 38 minutes a game. So are we going to, does anyone have anything else to say to that? I kind of don't, I don't agree. I think that especially having two, having two point guards like that who need the ball and then being able to not only stagger their minutes, but fit a system around the two of them that has made the Rockets so explosive and so good. I think you're kind of underselling the job he's done. And it's not just that. Like, he's been able to make Ryan Anderson a really good player. He's been able to... uh, Eric Gordon has had two straight incredible seasons, which, and we're going to get to that later, but I think you're kind of underselling the job that that D'Antoni's done. I think that the Rockets are where they are now, and I think more of that has to do with how D'Antoni's been able to build a system around James Harden and around Chris Paul because people will always say this, but the D'Antoni system and James Harden are a perfect match together. It's a system almost built in dreamland for him. And the fact that he's got Chris Paul now and the fact that he lost a lot of depth and lost a lot of key players in the trade and was able to recover, and now that they're the first seed ahead of the Golden State Warriors, I think that, that if the season were to end today, right now, I think D'Antoni would be my coach of the year. So, uh, final answers. I have Mike D'Antoni as coach of the year. Thomas, you have. You, you swayed me. Ah. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip. I'm going to go with D'Antoni as well. 
if we had a soundboard, this is where I would click the bang. Like, bring bang, <laughs> but it didn't happen. Uh, Warren is just going to be contrarian and choose. Yeah, I'm going with Dwayne Casey, and I want to I want to keep arguing with you right now. All right, let's go for it. Like Ryan Anderson, yes, he's having a good year, but his job is literally to shoot practice three pointers. All his threes are wide open, and it has nothing to do with Mike D'Antoni. It is like it's his system, but his system is dependent on point guards facilitating. It always has been. Ryan Kelly even had decent offensive seasons with that 2013 Los Angeles Lakers team. And, you know, it, it's it's a reflection that he's good at making players good offensively. But without James Harden and Chris Paul, what does he really do to make this work? So, I don't know. I'm going to go with Dwayne Casey because I think he took a group of guys that weren't expected to do very much. Took a Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan core. A lot of people thought Serge Ibaka was going to have to play 35 minutes a game for this team, and no one ever wants that anymore. And he's just turned the Raptors bench into really a, a dynamic group and one that's becoming well-respected across the league. So Dwayne Casey, for me, uh, he's just done a terrific job, and he's done something he wasn't supposed to do like Mike D'Antoni did. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add on the Dwayne Casey. But front, who's your coach so of the year? Dwayne Casey. Dwayne Casey. Dwayne Casey. We are split. 2v2. All right, we'll settle this. We'll settle this later. It'll get physical. We're going to talk now about the rookie of the year, and I don't think this one is going to be any more civil than the last one. And because I think that there's probably two separate, very distinct camps here. And so, Cam, like I said, two camps, and you are in Camp Simmons. Why is Ben Simmons rookie of the year for 2017-2018? Um, well, Ben Simmons is leading almost all major statistical categories for rookies, um, except for points, where he is second. Uh, but he's leading for rebounds, assists. He's averaging 1.9 steals a game. And the 76ers are five games above 500, um, a position that very few, if any, saw them in coming into the season. And I think that Simmons has a lot to do with that. I know that he did have a little bit of um, injury trouble earlier in the year, but especially when Embiid is on the floor with him, which has been sparse lately, but if they can stay together healthy, Simmons is by far the rookie of the year, even if he's not a rookie in many people's eyes. Okay, well, I'm taking a contrarian stance on this. I'm well aware that Ben Simmons is the favorite to win rookie of the year, and I know odds makers have that, but I'm going to provide an argument why I think that his value to the 76ers, while it is immense and I do respect a lot of what he has done, what my opinion is, is that Joel Embiid is the thing that makes that team run. And without Ben Simmons, I still think the 76ers would be a half-decent team. And they could potentially be near the position where they are today. So, first of all, when Joel Embiid is hurt, as he often is, uh, when he is off the court uh, and Ben Simmons is on the court, 76ers have a minus 9 net rating. Ben Simmons is below a point per shot, and he has a 27% usage rate. The team does not score when Joel Embiid is off the court. And well, yeah, because a, they have no one else to care about other than Simmons. Well, they have shooters. Ben Simmons, I mean, the fact that this guy cannot shoot is the problem because you have all these other shooters around, and you just, when a guy cannot shoot a basketball, like teams are just going to stay glued to Covington. They're going to stay glued to J.J. Redick, and they're going to make Simmons beat them. And Ben Simmons has proven that when he is by himself, he cannot beat other teams. And they've consistently struggled when Joel Embiid is out for his rest or his weekly injury. And moving on, it's not, that's a little bit of a slight to Simmons, but I also want to acknowledge everything that Donovan Mitchell has done. And 
we've mentioned the Utah's 11-game win streak uh, tirelessly on this show, and that has been with Rodney Hood traded. Ricky Rubio has been in and out of the lineup. Uh, Donovan Mitchell came into this team with very little expectations, and he has just come in. He took the starting job within two weeks, and he has just been scoring at a dominant rate ever since. And, um, you know, he's putting up efficient numbers. I know a lot of people consider him a chucker, and I know he has bad games. He is a rookie that does happen. But uh, the team does well when he is the main guy. He's got a 29% usage, and the team is winning. So, yes, Ben Simmons is having a great year, and, yes, he puts up video game numbers at times, and that is why he is the favorite to win. But Donovan Mitchell, if he was not on this Utah team, they would be so far down in the standings because they don't have anyone else who can create shots. And uh, Donovan Mitchell does it, and he shows so much poise down the stretch of games, even when he's struggling for a rookie. So, no, I'm taking the underdog stance here but I'm giving him the slight edge over Ben Simmons for Rookie of the Year. I think you're kind of also underselling just the impact that he's had on the uh, the Utah offense there. So, like, Yes, he does account for 30% of the offense, but that team is now projected to have the fifth best point differential in the league by the end of the season. If anybody had said, do you want to put money on that, that Utah is going to have the most exciting off- like one of the top five exciting offenses, I'd just laugh at you. That's absolutely asinine to say at the start of the year. Uh, He's also shooting 49% on corner threes, which is massively valuable when one of your other guards is Ricky Rubio, who on any given night could shoot 55% from three or 5.5% from three. (laughs) So having that as a release valve when you've got Gobert there as a pick and roll option, absolutely massive. Uh, But I've been getting a lot of death glares from Ferris and uh, let's, uh, let's, Let's hear his his take on this one. All right, I have a couple things to say. First off, you mentioned the uh, Simmons stats without Embiid. Uh, the entire buzz of Donovan Mitchell for Rookie of the Year has kind of just started since Rudy Gobert has been back from injury because then the Jazz have been winning games. I don't think that... I think if you look at his stats previous to Rudy Gobert's return from injury, you would be able to understand that he wasn't efficient and he was not leading to victories. I think that Rudy Gobert is just that important to the defensive scheme that Quinn Snyder has instilled on his team. And I think that a lot of the winning, although Donovan Mitchell has been incredible and impressive, and I don't want to slight the kid because I think he's an incredible player and I think he's going to have a great career in the NBA. I think that uh, if we're going to bring up uh, Simmons away from Embiid, we should bring up uh, Mitchell's team record away uh, from Rudy Gobert. Furthermore, as of right now, like I said, if the season ended now, you'd have a rookie of the year who did not make the playoffs. I don't think that that's very fair, uh, considering the next closest one is a rookie who is in the playoffs and is not a landslide victory for Donovan Mitchell. It would be a close victory. And third of all, and I think this is the most impressive part, only two rookies in the NBA history have averaged 16 points, 7 rebounds, and 7 assists. Those two rookies, Oscar Robertson, Magic Johnson. There's a third, it's Ben Simmons. If the season were to end today, he would average 16, 7.5, and 7.7. So I think that... That's pretty good company. I think, yeah, I think that if Westbrook got the MVP last year based off of averaging a triple-double and getting a triple-double, I don't want to open that can of worms again because we all know that that it's going to start a war. I I think that there's just way too much uh, on uh, Simmons' side that is being ignored just for... uh, Donovan Mitchell's shooting prowess. And I know we're not going to see eye to eye to this, but I keep I do want to continue arguing because it's a really fun argument to have. Okay, well, you're mentioning stats, and stats are nice, but I'm talking about winning, and Ben Simmons puts up numbers, but once again, Joel Embiid is the guy who's driving that team. And 
Michael Carter-Williams also put up very similar numbers to Ben Simmons. He averaged 16.7 points, 6.3 assists, 6.2 rebounds per game, and he also couldn't shoot. And when if Michael Carter-Williams had Joel Embiid, I think the Philadelphia 76ers would have won games back then. Uh, not that Joel Embiid would have been very good when he was like 17 years old, but point being that Yes, Ben Simmons puts up great numbers, and I do, I'm do. i not saying he's the next Michael Carter-Williams because that's really mean and irresponsible of me to say <laughs> on the air. But I'm also just saying that you have to take some context with the stats and realize that Joel Embiid is the guy that's driving this team, and that is that is something that I value maybe more than most vote givers. But I you, think you, you could say the same thing about Rudy Gobert. I mean, you want to talk about winning. <laughs> you, you take away the 11-game win streak, and... They're, sorry, 19 and 28. And that's, the 11 games is one-sixth of the season. So I'm going to take the 85% sample size over the 12% sample size. And also, if um, if you, you mentioned winning, but then you went off into a hypothetical tangent that if Michael Carter-Williams had access to a transcendent center, then he would be winning more games. I, I would have access to a transcendent center and win more games. That's just obvious. But I think that, I think that people are underestimating Simmons. He's a point guard. He's a six foot ten point guard. He is the entire team's offense runs through him. Even though you want to say Joel Embiid, a lot of players are designed for Embiid, but it's Simmons who pushes the pace. It's Simmons who sets the half-court sets. It's Simmons who's able to find... Covington, Saric, Redick, now Bellinelli for corner threes and for open looks. And uh, he's got, I think, six triple doubles on the season. That's most by a rookie since Magic Johnson. This, it's, it's, not, it's not uniquely stats-based. And if you're going to mention winning, you have to mention the fact that his team is currently in the playoffs and the Utah Jazz are not. And that if you want to mention the, the with and without Embiid, you have to bring up the with and without Gobert because there's a clear correlation that with Gobert, the Jazz win. Without Gobert, the Jazz lose. And I can. Th- you want the mic, so I'm going to assume that you're you're going to chase down block me again. I'm going to try to chase down block you. <laughs> I'm currently running down the court. I've got, got a bit of a lane to catch you, but just saying, when Joel Embiid plays, Philadelphia is 27 and 17. When he doesn't play, Philadelphia is three and eight. And that is just a reflection again. Like when Ben Simmons is the primary facilitator on this team, they do not win games, and they struggle when Embiid goes on the bench. They I mean, I don't blame them for struggling when it's Amir Johnson and Trevor Booker filling the, the void, or sometimes Rashawn Holmes. But, um, you know, I know that they've done well since Rudy Gobert came back, and, again, he's really helped their defense. But Donovan Mitchell's stats are actually better when Gobert's off the court. And the team struggled when it was Mitchell and Gobert early in the season. And I honestly think that a lot of the team's success has just been with Donovan Mitchell getting a bigger role. Now, if we look into early season stuff. Donovan Mitchell, uh, he was playing less minutes. He only played 22 minutes per game in October. He played 31 in November, but his minutes have been steadily rising uh, all the way up to 34 and 35 in February and March and January. So uh, as Donovan Mitchell has gotten a bigger role and higher usage rate, this team has started winning more and more games. So I know there's some correlation between Gobert being hurt and them winning, but at the same time, uh, Donovan Mitchell and Gobert struggled early on in the season when Mitchell was more in an off-ball role, when Rodney Hood and Ricky Rubio had the uh, big usage rates for this team. So Donovan Mitchell keeps getting better, and at this point uh, you could say it's close, but I think Mitchell is going to overtake him definitively before the end of this season. I think that 
Utah's streak can just as much be chalked up to lucky shooting as it can be to play from Donovan Mitchell. I mean, they've shot 45.6% on open threes and 48% on wide open threes during the streak, both of which are best in the league. They average 33% and 38% on those regularly. So, yeah, when you're hitting shots at a 12% and 10% higher clip, you're going to start winning more games. That's just the way math works. Thomas, you had something to say? Yeah, so just to try to contextualize the difference between having Gobert and not having Gobert. In lineups featuring uh, Mitchell but not featuring Gobert, there's one that has had 345 possessions, and I'm going to compare that to one that had Gobert in it that has had 420 possessions because those are the largest sample sizes we got available to us. The impact that Gobert has is predominantly on the defensive end, obviously. Uh, the points per 100 possessions of the Jazz score when we have Mitchell and no Gobert is 102.6, and it actually goes uh, down to 101.2 uh, when you add Gobert into the equation. So in a lineup that does not feature Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell is actually a better offensive uh, player, or the team performs better offensively with him on the court. Now, obviously the point differential in those cases is worse when you take Gobert out of the equation because he provides about a four-point swing uh, on just the defensive end alone. So Jazz objectively better with Gobert in the lineup, yes, but Mitchell's impact on the team debatably uh, not, not, not influenced as much uh, by Gobert's presence. And I'd, I'd like to say something. You mentioned a lot of... Uh stats when the Sixers do not have Embiid on the floor. I think any team would struggle with they don't have their best player on the floor, and I don't think that that should be taken as a slight on, on Ben Simmons, that he's been slightly less effective when he doesn't have his transcendent teammate on the floor with him. But, <clears throat> excuse me, just to it's a tiny sample size. It's one game. But the last game he played without him, he got a triple-double, and they won in a comeback fashion against Miami. And I, I mean, know that that's a game that you guys thought that they would lose because uh, Embiid wasn't... Uh, was Last questionable. year, Kyrie was worse with LeBron off the floor, too. It's hard being the second best player and then having to be the first best player once the actual best player goes out. It's fair. And I think I'd, I'd like to wrap this argument up because we have a couple more awards to get to. We have two, three more awards to get to. Uh, but just to end it, I think we're split two Mitchells, two Simmons. Okay, two people who are right, two people who are wrong. Moving on, we have probably, <laughs> we probably have the most, uh, I think, another unanimous award. I don't even want to spend much time on it. Uh, most improved player. I think everyone has the same uh, Indiana Pacers guard. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. not Oladipo. You just haven't watched basketball this season. Yeah, he went from being uh, segregated on the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder to being a first option on a playoff team and an all-star. Uh, he's. I think he's at 25 points per game as of now. 24.9, which is a 10-point increase almost. A 9-point increase, an entire 9 points over the 15.9 from last year. More rebounds, more assists. And his field goal percentage went from 49 per, uh, well, 0.49% to 0.53%. So I don't think that there, we need yeah. to spend too much time on Victor Oladipo. He's just been incredible this season, and he is the heartbeat of the Indiana Pacers. I think everyone is going to agree, except for Warren, of course. Okay, well, I agree, but I think there is an honorable mention that we, we should have to say without just blindly moving on. And I think that's actually Aaron Gordon, who has really improved dramatically this year. Uh, he averaged 12-5 and five last year, couldn't really shoot three-pointers. Uh, but now this year he's averaging 18 points, eight rebounds, uh, two assists. He's imp improved his three-point percentage by 7%. 
and he's really taken on a strong offensive role for the Orlando Magic. Uh, granted, they're not really winning games, but I did think it was worth mentioning that Aaron Gordon has had a breakout year, and it's too bad Victor Oladipo is pretty much just going to squash any argument anyone would have for any other player, but I did think he was worth mentioning. I think we're good. I think we're just going to try and get to the next one, which I think will be a little bit longer than the... Um... Then the most improved player, it's the defensive player of the year. Now, uh, you can't see this because you're listening to this and it's an audio file, but the man next to me is Warren Coastway, and he's wearing a Paul George jersey. And I'm going to assume Paul George is who you're going to bet on for, or not bet on, but he's your guy for defensive player of the year. And I can chase down block you for on that because I have stats. Uh, I actually haven't decided yet. I'm well, okay. Well, I'm going to pass it off. I'm going to pass it off to Cam and uh, let's see what Cam thinks. Cam, who's your defensive player of the year? Um, now this is funny because I just made the case for Simmons. I might have to go with Embiid. Um, it's, I don't think it's, it's the conventional pick of Leonard or, um, Gobert who I think are a lot more recognized for what they do. Um, Embiid definitely is, but I don't think that he gets as much, uh, discussion in defensive player of the year conversations as he should. Um, top five in blocks, top five in rebounds. Um, he is near the top of the league in defensive win shares. Um, he's just a presence. I mean, his his presence around the basket is a literal deterrent for driving. And um, I think that the stats that Warren brought up about their their rating without him on the floor. Um, is just as much a testament to his defensive abilities as it is to what he provides on the offensive side. Yeah, I mean, calling Joel Embiid a, a deterrent to people driving is like saying Fergie saying the national anthem bad. Like, it's strictly true, but it's also just woefully insufficient. Uh, with Embiid on the floor, the 76ers only allow 100.4 points per 100 possessions. With him off the floor, that goes up to 109.8 points per 100 possessions. So just to put that into context, uh, with him on the floor, the 76ers have the best defense in the NBA. That's better than the Warriors. It's better than the Celtics, better than the Raptors, better than everybody. Uh, as soon as he's not on the floor, though, they drop to the same level as the Knicks, Nets, and Bulls. Yes, Those are three teams you do not ever want to have your team mentioned in the same sentence as. Uh, I have a, I think I'm, I'm on the MB train too. I have uh, uh, a different stat, but the uh, top five defensive duos on the season in terms of limiting opponent field goal percentages, the top three are all Embiid and a teammate. With Robert Covington, it's 41.5 field goal percentage. With J.J. Redick, it's 41.4. And with him and Ben Simmons, it's 40.9%. So that's three of the top five defensive duos in the NBA who feature one common denominator, and that being uh, the process himself. I don't think – I think that uh, there was talk of Paul George being a potential favorite for Defensive Player of the Year, but since uh, Andre Roberson broke, the Oklahoma City Thunder have just – their defense has just tanked, and they've become an incredibly average defense. And to go off topic, I think them not getting an Avery Bradley type is probably going to hurt them a lot in the playoffs, but that's a discussion for another day. I struggle to think of any player who has as much or anywhere near a um, as much of an impact on the de- his team's defensive play as Embiid has mentioned. You mentioned his uh, his effect on his team, defensive win shares, blocks, steals, all that that are among the top for his position and limiting his you're limiting your opponent's shooting, which is shooting as king in the NBA. And if people can't shoot against you, then uh, 
I mean, how are they going to score? Uh, I, Warren is furiously clicking through players, I think, trying to find an argument here. I'm going to pass off the mic to him. Is there someone you think that is a competitor of Joel Embiid for Defensive Player of the Year? Yeah, I do. I, I'm kind of leaning towards Embiid at the moment, but I'm going to go a little bit off the board here and someone that not many people have mentioned. And I really think that Kevin Durant deserves some sort of recognition for his defensive ability. I mean, this guy in his career has averaged only 1.1 blocks per game, and this year he's up right around two. Um, but I think that his defensive presence and really his abilities, it can best be seen just really when watching the Warriors. Like His help defense, his on-ball defense, all of which have improved uh, tremendously this year. Uh, I don't have the stat in front of me, but I do know that players' field goal percentages have been drastically altered when he is, uh, when he is guarding their shot tightly. And just his length and his ability to create turnovers and you know there's not too much to support it and I know that there are guys who have better defensive win shares and stuff like that but um, I really think that Durant just just from the eye test and I'm very rarely the guy who says that but I really think that Kevin Durant deserves some votes and some recognition and I mainly chose this I didn't follow what you guys all had to say honestly I I was thinking about Durant as well um there's a couple reasons why I didn't choose him. Um, the first being the Warriors are better defensively without him on the floor. Um, is that a correlation or is that just a, a random occurrence, you think? I mean, I guess it could be a little bit of both. But specifically, I mean, him and Draymond are, I think, the two big key defenders for them. And so when they're both on the floor... The Warriors have a 105.7 defensive rating. With just Durant, it goes up to 107, which isn't a big difference. But with just Draymond and without Kevin, it goes all the way down to 97.5. So it's literally a 10-point difference between Durant without Draymond and Draymond without Durant. And so... Those aren't drastically different sample sizes. They're within 30 minutes of each other in size. So I I don't want to definitively say that it's a correlation, that Draymond makes them better defensively than KD does, but the numbers say that. And I do believe that what Warren's saying about the eye test is true. Durant definitely does look better defensively this year. I don't know if that makes him worthy of winning the award, though. But like I said, I would definitely have him in my top three. That's fair. And I think sometimes the on-off stats can have flaws. Like uh, Kawhi Leonard, actually, two years ago, the Spurs had a worse defensive rating with him on the court. Uh, And obviously that is not a slight at Kawhi Leonard. It's just sometimes uh, when he was standing in the corner, he would force – the other team would just go guard, pick, and roll with Tony Parker and Pau Gasol and just abuse them. So sometimes there there are other factors. But uh, I do believe that that uh, Kevin Durant, I think that those stats you were talking about had to do with, uh, honestly, just the time that they're on the court. Like Draymond Green, he'll be on the court uh, with the second unit with Iguodala and David West, and uh, those types of units are, are really dominant and have great net ratings. So I think that sometimes those stats aren't a reflection of the defensive player uh, that we see, but I, I still think Durant is a guy that is worth mentioning for the award anyway so we got three Embiid's final tally three Embiid's one Durant are you comfortable with that being said on air lock it in yes lock it okay all right we're good so three people who are right and a Warren and now (laughs) we have our last award sixth man of the year sixth award sixth man 
bang. <laughs> now let's go on to Thomas. Thomas, who's your sixth man of the year? Uh, it's Lou Will. Uh, Does that count? Does that count? Because he stars half his games. I don't know. He's if, still ooh, technically I was, eligible I was also for it. Go Lou Will, so I, I hope. I it checked. Counts. I checked this this morning. He's still eligible get by games played. There's a percentage of games played that you can't. Okay, start. fair enough. So as of the recording of this podcast, he's still eligible for the award. And since we're doing as of today awards, he counts. Uh, typically, six man of the year doesn't go to the most impactful player off the bench. It goes to the best scorer off the bench. Um, I think the fact that Lou Will uh, was making a case for being an all-star worthy player this year uh, kind of speaks to the fact that he has had a very, very dominant season offensively, as he tends to do in his in his chucking role off the bench. Um, I do think, and I'll preface this with saying that I think Eric Gordon also has a, a very strong case to be made for this award, but uh, for me, it's it's Lou Will for this one. Yeah, I got Lou Will too. I got Lou Will. I kind of just decided on the spot that I was going to go with Lou Will because I was under the impression that he wasn't able to win the award. But now that I know he is, uh, I'm going to go with Lou Williams. He's averaging 23 a game, I believe. Yeah, 20, 23.2 a game, uh, 37% from three, 89% from the line, uh, 44% from the field. For example, compared to, uh, Eric, to Eric Gordon, I almost said Aaron Gordon, 41% from the field, 33 from three, and 81 from the line. They're both incredible players to have off the bench, and it's really stupid that Houston had both last year, which, again, just goes to show that they lost a lot of players, a lot of quality players in their trade for uh, Chris Paul. But I, I think, it, I don't want to say it's no contest because there definitely is an argument to be made for Eric Gordon to win if you value being the sixth man on the first seed versus being the sixth man on the toiling in mediocrity clippers it's i'm gonna go with lou williams because i think he just has the best stats and therefore deserves to be the be- the sixth man of the year uh i'll pass it off to cam pass it off to warren then yeah drake didn't write a song about six men with eric gordon i think the vote <laughs> is pretty simple bang yeah uh lou will All can't right. say it better than that unanimous so we have two unanimous awards we had mvp that was james harden we had six man of the year, which was Lou Williams. Uh, Coach of the year, I had Mike D'Antoni. You had Mike D'Antoni, Thomas. Correct. You had Dwayne Casey. You had Dwayne Casey. So we had a split. We also had a split with rookie of the year. Two Ben Simmons, two Donovan Mitchell, and then defensive player of the year, three Joel Embiid, one Kevin Durant, and most improved uh, four-way sweep for Victor Oladipo, 4-0. So that's it, guys. There was no basketball to, uh, this week, obviously, uh, because of the uh, All-Star game. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of news. Uh Charlotte fired their GM this morning, but I don't really think that we need to mention that too much because it's because it's Charlotte. It's Charlotte, and at the end of the day, it's like <laughs> it's Charlotte. Sorry, Tate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you for listening to episode two. If you've made it this far, uh, thank you again. Forty-five minutes of us rambling on about basketball must not be the easiest thing to listen to, but thank you if you have. If you have any more constructive criticism, any more comments that you'd like us to look into, thank you. If you have any ideas for more segments on the show, that everything is welcome. Thank you. This has been Lunchtime Layup, Episode 2. I'm Ferris Kaff, joined by Cam, Warren, and Thomas, and we're out. See you next week.